Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Owen Pennell. I work as a producer for BBC Arabic in the documentaries team. Owen has an important beat. He makes TV about the Arabic-speaking world. And so he has a close eye on what is happening in the Middle East. That means monitoring local news, talking to people, and even keeping a watch of social media. And it was there, on Twitter, that Owen spotted images that would burn themselves into his brain. Just massive, massive flames in southern Iraq that appeared to just come out of the ground. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off. Those images of flares from oil fields stuck with Owen. And he wasn't the only one interested in them. BBC Arabic had been talking to Greenpeace UK, and one reporter at Greenpeace's journalist unit, Unearthed, Joe Sandler Clark, he had been thinking about the same things as Owen. This came up a long time ago, really. I was fascinated by the issue of gas flaring, which is if you've seen an oil field on TV or in person, that's the kind of flame that shoots out of the field. And essentially what that is, is gas that's produced by drilling oil and it's set alight if there's nowhere for it to go. And in places like Iraq, where there isn't the infrastructure to process the gas, a huge amount is fled. Joe had found some data on gas flare burn-offs that was collected by the World Bank. And when he dug into the data, he found that Iraq had the second highest number of flares in the world, second only to Russia. But what was going on with Iraqi oil these days wasn't much discussed. And that had piqued Joe's interest. And then, as luck would have it, BBC Arabic got in touch around the same time that I started looking at that. So while Joe got to work on his investigation, Owen at the BBC kept digging in and reading as much as he could. And he couldn't stop scrolling through all these images he'd found on social media. Flames firing all the way up into the Iraqi sky. And he wasn't alone. He was joined in his curiosity by Jess. My name is Jess Kelly and I'm a freelance director and have been making investigative documentaries for a while now. Owen and Jess have worked together many times in the past. And so they set out to try and get to the bottom of what was happening out near Basra in Iraq. 
these flares. It turned out they were from oil fields, where gas is emitted during the extraction of oil. In much of the world, this gas would then be processed and used for power generation, or re-injected to force out more oil from the ground. But in impoverished Iraq, the lack of infrastructure meant this gas has nowhere to go, and so is set alight, or vented out into the atmosphere. Flaring has been a feature of the Iraqi oil industry for decades, but it ramped up when foreign companies re-entered the country after the 2003 invasion and began increasing production. And now the scale of it, the immensity of the flares, is shocking. And it's clear that these oil fields were incredibly close to towns and villages where people were living, going about their daily lives in the glare of those flames. And so that obviously drew us like moths to the light and we wanted to find out what was going on with these flares. The first step was to start talking to people in the area, calling people there, talking to local journalists on the ground. And soon they heard about a worrying trend. People in the areas around the oil fields were reporting high levels of cancer, particularly the children. We were told that there were really high levels of cancer and other health problems in the areas around these flares and that people in those communities were ascribing their health problems to these flares. So we wanted to find out if that was true. Then they heard of a teenager, a boy called Ali, who lived in Ramela, right next to an oil field which was part-owned by BP. That's Ali saying, I'm Ali Hussein Julud. I have leukemia. I live in North Romela next to the British oil company BP. And even then, I think it was really clear that he had a really strong voice. He wanted to see the gas flaring stop. And he was angry as well at how other people were getting sick and how he got sick as a result of the gases that he was saying were 24-7 pumping out from these flares and the complete lack of care that was being shown by the authorities and by the companies. So yeah, he was really compelling right from the start. But there was a major issue with talking to Ali. Owen and Jess were making a documentary. They needed to be able to film with people, show just what was happening in these communities. But Ali lived in Romela. And there, there were strict controls about who was allowed to enter the community. There are checkpoints all around and you're not really allowed to enter unless you live there. So we started brainstorming how we can actually get footage from this very isolated place. And Ali actually told us that he's an aspiring filmmaker. So we gave him a camera and started working with him to get him to record video diaries of you know his, his daily life there and the pollution. He would take videos with the camera they'd given to him, or even on his phone, and then upload them to Dropbox, where, miles away, Owen and Jess would pour over the footage. Here's Ali giving a tour of his local area. He's saying, look at that smoke. It's really going now. I've parked my motorbike here to look at this view, which we've got used to. These are the houses of Romela. 
And look at the smoke and the gases, they're all coming towards our neighbourhood. When I told the doctor I lived in this area, he said it's the main reason for your illness. Here's video seeing kind of how daily life would happen alongside these horrific clouds of smoke. So a football game, for example, where you can see everyone running around, inhaling deeply, and behind them is a massive cloud of smoke. And Ali would would film that, or he would show kids playing hopscotch in the shadow of a flare and talk about how this generation was breathing in this toxic air and they're not aware of the chemicals that are coursing through their veins. But the team knew they needed more. So Owen and Jess found themselves boarding a flight and heading out to Iraq. Yeah, to get to Basra, it's quite a difficult journey. You you change usually in Istanbul and then you fly from Istanbul to Basra. And as you approach, especially at night, all you can see is flares lighting up the skies around Basra. And it's really apocalyptic. They started travelling from town to town, talking to everyone they could about the impact the flares were having on their lives. I mean, everyone was telling us that cancer was like the flu in our town and that everyone was sick. And one of the things that Ali was saying was newborn babies have respiratory diseases within weeks of being born. And this very dark picture of an epidemic, really, of health issues. But there is a lack of reliable data. I mean, we looked for academic studies. We looked also for official data published by the Iraqi government. There is some official data. It's not very detailed. And we also, we were told by doctors that those figures were inaccurate and were downplaying the levels of disease and that essentially there was a cover-up going on. It was a tough position to be in. The journalists were talking to families whose children were clearly very ill. And... um that's when we met Fatima, who was a 13-year-old girl who lived literally metres away from big gas flares in Basra. And we followed her story. She was being treated for leukaemia, which is the type of cancer closely linked to benzene. And we spent time with her family, who described sometimes the smoke being so bad that they could hardly breathe and having kind of droplets of oil raining down from the sky and, you know, making their washing turn black. It seemed very likely that the oil flares, burning around the clock right by her house, were in some way responsible for Fatima's and other children's illnesses. But without the scientific tests, it was hard to show just what the flares were causing. Then the solution came to them. If the official data didn't exist or wasn't trustworthy, then they were going to have to gather their own. So the team are going to try and collect their own scientific data to fill in the hole where the official figures should be. But that is easier said than done. We had a lot of early chats with Aidan Farrow from Greenpeace Science Unit, who was extremely helpful in talking us through what the different options were. And first of all, obviously cost is a barrier because... We can't bring, you know, really advanced equipment or also security as a barrier because getting those things through customs is difficult. So Aiden, I think, was the one who suggested these uh, these kind of tubes that are like small aluminium tubes. I think he said that they'd been used in other places for this exact purpose of basically monitoring and sampling pollution from gas flares. They also got their methodology reviewed and verified by experts at Imperial College London and Columbia University. 
So they knew what they were going to do. But before they could get started, they had to get the equipment into the country in the first place. They can't say too much about how that happened, but it involved getting the equipment, these metal tubes for air monitoring, through customs and security without freaking anyone out. In the country, they teamed up with a local academic, Professor Shukri Al-Hassan, who helped set up the monitors in communities around the flares. They also decided to start collecting urine samples from the children in the surrounding towns. They could send these off to be tested to see the levels of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, these compounds that are created through incomplete combustion. Testing the children's urine would show whether these compounds were accumulating in their young bodies. Those compounds have been linked to all kinds of health problems, including cancers. Yeah, it was difficult, especially with the urine sampling. We were going into communities and asking parents, can we take urine of your your child and it was you know quite a strange request and it had to be done sensitively and we needed quite large sample numbers as well. And then there was what to do with all those urine samples. So it was actually Owen who kept all these files of urine in his mini fridge in, in the hotel room in Basra. Yeah I wouldn't want to subject anyone else to seeing all these files of urine. Also didn't really want any of the questions that might arise from those being discovered in my fridge. <laughs> yeah, we had the do not disturb sign on. <laughs> Luckily, no one saw or questioned the mini fridge of urine samples, and the journalists managed to get him out of the country and off to the lab. As they left, Owen and Jess couldn't help but feel glad that no longer be surrounded by the oppressive and ever-present smog. Yeah, I mean, we, we did really feel it, especially when we were filming the gas flares from up close. I remember there was one time Owen was filming through a fence and was really quite close and he inhaled way too much and had a headache and you really feel it and it's genuinely a relief to arrive back in the UK or wherever we would be transiting and breathe air that is just so obviously so much cleaner and I kept thinking Ali has recovered from cancer but he's still breathing this air day in day out and it can't be a safe place for him to to live, especially with that medical history. Back in the UK, they kept talking to Ali and others from the film as they waited for the scientific samples to be tested. They've come a long way, but they know there's part of the investigation still missing. They need to know who are the companies behind the gas flares, to get data on whether the flares have gotten worse in recent years, and if so, how they're getting away with it. All this time, Joe from Greenpeace's Unearthed team has been working away. He's been researching all about Romela, where Ali lives. So Romela has at various points been described as the backbone of the Iraqi oil industry. It produces a huge amount of oil and has massive reserves. It's got about, I think, 17 billion barrels of oil reserves. It produces 1.45 million barrels of oil a day. To put that in context, I think the UK produces 1.7 million barrels a day last time I checked. So this one field is producing like a comparable amount of oil to the whole of the UK oil industry. Joe found that the oil field there was owned by the state-owned Basra Oil Company. And until June 2022, the field's official operator was the Rumela Operating Organisation, ROO. That company and BP were closely connected. BP held a 47.6% participating interest in the company, and the company counted several current and former BP staffers among its senior team. 
then, just last year, a company established and owned by BP and PetroChina, the Basra Energy Company, began to manage the field. The way oil contracts work is that companies come in and they're given a role as a contractor. In BP's case, they're given a set amount of money for their work as a lead contractor in the Romela oil field, and that fluctuates according to the oil price. So I think the most recent figures I had that about making about $300 million profit from the field. And obviously Romela is producing like a lot more money than that. But the vast, vast majority of that money goes to the Iraqi state. Nevertheless, this is still like a hugely profitable field for them. And then Joe had a breakthrough. He looked at BP's logs off their own emissions and the numbers, they just didn't seem right. And then he realised, despite their large stake in the Ramallah oil field, despite taking $300 million worth of profits from the oil produced there, BP were not counting those emission figures as their own. They were taking no responsibility or accountability for all of the emissions produced there. So BP like, claims to be making really good progress, reducing flaring, reducing emissions across the world. But we learned just by look, kind of looking through their emissions numbers and talking to like industry experts that they don't count Ramela in those numbers. So they're claiming to be making this progress on climate. As part of that, they're claiming to be making progress reducing flaring emissions. But Ramela is just not included in any of those figures. And what we quickly realized is that no one does. There's a real kind of accountability gap in how those emissions are accounted for. There was a startling revelation. Huge quantities of polluting gases thrown up into the atmosphere and they're not being recorded anywhere. And so to realise that there's this gigantic oil field in Iraq, and to realise that by our calculations, if it was included in BP's overall annual flaring emissions, that BP's annual flaring emissions would be doubled, and that no one had put those things together. I mean, it's great from a news point of view. It gives you like a nice top line. But it is also concerning that there's this huge amount of greenhouse gases being emitted and there's not much accountability or understanding of it. Here's Owen again. But BP weren't the only company involved. There's also Lukoil, who are a Russian company, and there's any Italian company. And one of the bits of data work that we did was just looking at how close each flare was to where people were living. So kind of mapping it out using Google Earth and seeing there's a flare, there's a flare, there's a flare. And, you know, all these flares are so close to those houses. So some of them were as close as 300 metres away. Others were like one or two kilometres away. And then what we learned from Professor Shukri is that actually the Iraqi environmental law says that flares should be no closer than 10 kilometres to where people live. So it was clearly breaking Iraqi law as well. More after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All this time, the journalists have been trying to talk to insiders, people that work for these oil companies, to find out more about what the rules are and whether they're being broken. We've used LinkedIn and other websites to try to figure out who had worked in Iraq for BP, for example, and maybe who, who had left now and people who were maybe now working on green goals who'd kind of changed their careers and would speak to us because of a, a feeling of wanting to do the right thing. Yeah, so the there's a whistleblower in the film who talks about how basically BP had it in their power to reduce the levels of gas flaring, but decided it wasn't worth it because of the amount of money you know that would cost and the fact that it would be a hit on their profits from this contract. They spoke to several insiders who told them similar things, but most wouldn't even consider talking on camera. It soon became clear why. This was a dangerous thing to be talking about. There were some oil insiders who we managed to talk to inside Iraq, and they would be people that worked in the oil industry but were really angry with how things were being run. So we managed to approach them through our colleagues in Iraq, and we did quite a lot of anonymous interviews with engineers, um, people who said that a lot of the safety precautions were being broken, people who said that the way the flares were being run was completely outdated and highly polluting. And none of these people would speak out and complain to BP because their livelihood depended on it. And there's also the pressure of militias in Iraq, which benefit from the, the oil contracts. So actually, anyone who criticizes the oil industry in Iraq is 
taking a bit of a risk. But just to give you an idea, you know, we had on our first deployment to Basra, someone we were working with was threatened by Iraqi intelligence and basically told this film you're working on is going to cost us billions of dollars. But amazingly, the team were leaked several important documents. A confidential and never-before-published report from the Iraqi Health Ministry blamed pollution from the oil industry, as well as other sources, for a 20% rise in cancer in Basra between 2015 and 2018. A second leaked document from the local government in Basra shows that cancer cases in the region were, in reality, three times higher than the official published figures. And then, months later, the results from the team's experiments started coming in. The data gathered by the air pollution monitors showed benzene levels at three times the limit set by the Iraqi government. And the urine tests on the children showed they had strikingly high PAH levels in their bodies. 70% of all the children they tested had high levels. And every single child from Ramallah did. So the first thing you do is just forward that email to all of the different scientists that you're speaking to and basically say, what does all this mean? And as well as understanding their data themselves, the team made sure that the individual results from the children's urine tests were relayed back to the families. They'd sought advice from experts on how to deliver this difficult news. It was important to make sure that the families understood that these were science results, not medical, and that they only showed an increase in risk of cancer, but it was by no means certain that the children would get ill. Still, it was hard news to hear. And some of the families that we filmed with were really angry when they when they found out the results because it was the first time they had proof that their kids were being subjected to pollution. And then it became a real challenge for us to try to find a, a way for them to channel that anger and have community meetings where they could talk about solutions and actions that they could take using the data. But there was one person who would never hear her results. Tragically, Fatima, the 13-year-old girl the journalist had met months ago, had died from her cancer. It was a huge blow. Here's Fatima's mother. She's showing the camera the girl's wardrobe and saying, these are all hers. She died wearing this. Until her last day, she was saying, I won't die. I won't die. Whenever I asked her what she wanted, she'd just say, I just want to get better. She saw people dying at the hospital, but she remained strong to the end. The team had all the research they needed. The scientific tests, the company's own data, the satellite imagery showing how close the flares were, and the stories of teenagers and children like Fatima and Ali, who were living in this terrible landscape. But now a big question mark. They wanted to put the findings to someone in charge. Ihsan Abdul-Jabbar Ishmael, the Minister of Oil in Iraq. So they put in a request, hardly daring to hope that he'd agree. But then, the answer came back. He said he would do an on-camera interview. We were really, really surprised when we heard 
where the oil minister had said yes, we're still in Basra at the time, they gave us a really tiny window to do it. So we had to literally get in the car and fly up to Baghdad and do the interview straight away. And yeah, there is always this feeling of, um, does he know kind of how much we're armed with in terms of holding him to account for this pollution in the industry he's responsible for? And I think what helped was just having that data at the tips of our fingers. So anytime he would kind of say something like, we have too many cars in Basra and that's why the air is polluted, we could actually just respond with the figures we'd found in the communities near the oil fields. He did eventually shut down the interview, didn't want it to go any further, but we were able to use what we'd already recorded. After a while, the minister called it quits and the interview was hastily terminated. Finally, after months of work, the investigation is published by the BBC. And Unearthed put out their own investigation on their website. Yeah, I remember when we watched the News at 10 cut from home after kind of working on it during the day. It was like the first time in a long time that I saw... For example, Fatima, the girl who died of cancer during the film, it's the first time I had connected in an emotional way again, kind of seeing how audiences around the UK would watch and and she became kind of human again. And it was it was very yeah, emotional to watch her story, which we've been bogged down in, but from filmmaking, you know, wanting to make it work and then yeah, seeing it on the ten o'clock news kind of really brought it home how how tragic the stories of these children are whose lives are cut short. And then things started to happen. One of the first really important bits of impact was that the environment minister for the first time said that the health issues were as a result of the gas flaring. And that is a link that was never made by any Iraqi politicians. So that was a really big deal. And they made statements about bringing forward the year for which gas flaring should be stopped. So that was a really big impact. And Ali was pleased to see the programme go out. I remember he loved the poster of himself, you know, because he's the, he's the sort of poster boy of the film. And he thought he looked really cool, which he does on this poster. And I remember he was like saying that his dad was like, oh, no, you're, you're going to find <laughs> you're going to find a wife pretty quickly. You know, with that, <laughs> you look like an action hero kind of thing. So I think that we did him proud in the end and he did himself proud by letting the whole world see just how shocking and awful the pollution is in Ramela and what BP are doing to that community. In a response to the BBC's questions, BP said, It reports its emissions in line with standard practice across the oil and gas industry. We are extremely concerned by the issues raised by the BBC. We will immediately review those concerns and work with our partners on any necessary interventions. We are fully committed to supporting further improvements at this vitally important field for Iraq. Luke Oil and Eni, who are connected to other fields featured in the report, both told the BBC that they are not obligated to report flaring from non-operational fields and that they do not contractually have control over strategy decisions or responsibility for flaring or flaring reduction in their respective oil fields. Since it first aired, the film has been used to keep the pressure on. 
and in April this year, Ali was due to travel to BP's annual shareholder meeting, where he was going to challenge the CEO on why his company continues to poison his neighbourhood with cancer-causing pollution. But just a few days before the meeting, tragedy struck. We heard the news that he had passed away. Uh, and yeah, I think we were both just devastated. Ali's leukaemia had returned. He was just 21 years old when he died. Yeah, and I mean, Ali was so stoic and didn't necessarily say how bad he was feeling or how sick he was getting. We spoke to him like a few days before he died about the idea of challenging BP and the BP board at their their annual meeting. And we said, are you going to be well enough? Are you sure you can do this? Because he was in hospital at that time. And he was like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm up for it. No problem. I'm really excited to do it. So, I mean, he was just right until the end, extremely brave and just thinking of others and just wanting to advocate for his community. And it's just an awful, awful tragedy that his life was cut short in that way. When we were first speaking to people from these communities, they were telling us, Cancer is like the flu. It's an epidemic here. People are dying all the time and it's because of this pollution. And you're like, wow, that sounds really bad. But until you've kind of got to know some of these kids and got to know this community, it's hard to imagine just how bad it is. And so we we saw that and felt it. And it's, yeah. And hopefully, well, I think the community speaking out about it has helped to to bring it out into the light. That's all for this episode of The Tip-Off. Thanks to Owen Pinnell, Jess Kelly and Joe Sandler-Clark. There's a link to the programme Under Poison Skies, which is on BBC iPlayer in the show notes, as well as a link to the unearthed online version of the story. This episode was presented and produced by me, Maeve McLennigan, with editing from Chloe Burns, original music by Claudia Meza, sound design by Alec Cowan, and additional support from Joaquin Alvarado. Stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines.